City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the Theatre. This seminar, play script, director. This is an American Theatre Wing seminar in the series Working in the Theatre. It's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located on 42nd Street in New York City. This is where the heart of the theatre is, where Off-Broadway, Off-Off-Broadway, and Broadway all meet. They meet to nurture each other. They meet to share the magic of quality theatre. The American Theatre Wing has long identified itself with quality. The Tony Awards were established to reward and award the achievement of excellence in the theater. And all through the years, the American Theatre Wing has worked to do just that, to make sure that quality theater is brought to the audiences. We are a year-round organization. We bring theater to the community. We bring theater through our Saturday Theater for Children program, which are in public schools, elementary age schools, so that they can enjoy the enrichment of live theater. We also bring theater to hospital programs, to hospitals in greater New York. We bring them to our um, aid centers, and we bring them to nursing homes, and we bring them to hospitals. And this is an outgrowth of the famous World War, Second World War stage door canteens. We've continued servicing the community through the theater. Introduction to Broadway is a program that brings high school students to Broadway. It's their first Broadway show, and for many, it's their very first show in a professional atmosphere. And this is done in cooperation with the New York City Board of Education, and the generosity of wonderful, wonderful producers. We also have these seminars, and the seminars have been created to give you an inside view of what it is to work in the theater, what it is to work in the theater from the standpoint of the performer, from the playwright, from the director, from the choreographer, from the composer, from the press agent, and from the advertising agent, from the set designs and, and, the, and the costume designers and the lighting and sound designers and how to work with the guilds and the unions and how they work for you. There are many, many people and many, many components and make up working in the theater, all professional and all to the benefit of the audience. Today's seminar is on the play script, the director, the playwright, and the composer, how they work together, and how they work for you. I'm going to turn this over to our co-moderators, Brendan Gill, long associated with The New Yorker, author and critic, and George White, 
who is president of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Connecticut. And they, in turn, will introduce this group of distinguished artists to you. Thank you for being here. On my uh, far right is uh, Vernel Banyuris, a man with a very romantic Creole name coming from New Orleans, not to be startled by that. We once had a program here where almost the entire program proved to be on the edge of dealing with shoes and nothing but shoes. And I must say, Vernel's shoes are perfectly astonishing. I admire them. <laughs> next, next to Vernel is Lawrence Sacharo, who is the uh, director of Edward Albee's wonderful play, Three Tall Women. And then at my immediate right, Nancy Opal, who plays a whole variety of roles, but Betty Kafka's second woman and Mrs. Trotsky in the play, all in the timing, which as far as I'm concerned, should run forever. George? Thank you, Brendan. Uh, on my extreme left, not terribly extreme, but extreme left, is uh, Matt West, which is not a bank, but actually a choreographer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, maybe he will be. A uh, choreographer of uh, Disney's Beauty and the Beast. And uh, on his right is Don Scardino, who is the artistic director of Playwrights Horizons and the current director of Achiever Evening. And uh, right next to me is David Ives, who is the current playwright of All in the Timing, and whose other work includes Ancient History and The Red Address. Well done. I was going to ask David right off the bat, uh, so often it's the case with a playwright that there's an attitude or a makeup in his mind which is games playing, and, and All in the Timing is so much an intricate and wonderful game along with everything else. And are you a games player? Are you a chess person? Are you a... Um, I, I wasted several years playing chess, actually, in my <laughs> youth, but uh, then decided that there was no money in that, so I'd become a playwright. And, uh, <laughs> and um, found there was a lot of money in that. <laughs> Um, I read the bridge column every day, in the, or every other day in the Times now, uh, which is about the extent of my games playing that's left in, a, in my... The rest of the time is taken up with uh, uh, business now. But not I can't say not really. I, I, I mean, uh, uh, no, not very much. And I, and I have to apologize for my shoes. I, uh, <laughs> they haven't got that tab on the back. <laughs> that's what I like, that so tab. Nice. Um, so, uh, not really. I mean, I, I kind of restrict my games playing to, um, to, the, uh, to my writing table. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not even good at things like Scrabble, you know. I, 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 feel like, I feel my mortality when I'm playing those games, you know. <laughs> when someone says party games, I think, my God, I, you know, I, I have only so long to live. I can't play, you know, I can't play Botticelli now. <laughs> There's no time. But what about your other plays? Do they represent... Um, I, uh, they're quite different. I think that... Uh, um, one thing that I have tried to to do in all of these years of uh, non-game playing playwriting is is to try to stay fresh, and so I think the other plays are all quite different from this. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, variety is. Uh, I get bored if I write the same play twice, so I so I try to. But you've written a great number. Quite a few, yes. How many? Well, uh, uh, I just had fourteen of them brought together in in a book, and that's probably the last few years' work. So I've been writing quite a lot, although I'd prefer to forget most of them. So, <laughs> so would many other people. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask uh, Matt, uh, too, uh, as a choreographer, because we don't always have uh, or ever have enough choreographers uh, here at, at, on these uh, uh, seminars, but um, uh, 
in doing, of course, Beauty and the Beast, how did you, what was your influences in getting into choreography? I mean, that's a, uh, it's a wonderful uh, profession, if you will, but it's, a, it's, I hate to use the word esoteric, but it certainly is not what one normally goes into because there's not a lot of opportunity. And how, are you from the coast and, or where are you from? Oh, yes, I'm from California. Okay. Uh, uh, I've lived in New York about 20 years. And actually, I started performing with Disney when I was just a kid on uh, their tours, Disney on Parade. So my association with Disney goes back quite a ways. And I always wanted to choreograph. I uh, had worked on Broadway in a chorus line and a couple other things uh, and uh, thought it was a stepping stone to uh, choreography, yeah. no pun intended. And uh, I was very good at Twister, actually. That was, my, <laughs> that was my favorite game, so there you have it. But I always wanted to choreograph. Um, I enjoyed performing very much, learned so much from working with Michael Bennett, uh, uh, many people out in California, Tim Conway show, when, when we did specials and television shows. But this is what I wanted to do. Well, did you sort of hang out a shingle and say, Matt was choreographer? What? No, you know, it's the old story. I was at a party okay. a few years ago uh, for, for Disney out at the studio, and they had seen, I had done the movie of A Chorus Line, and it had just come out, and they approached me and said, hey, would you like to choreograph some television specials for us? And I had done a lot of television as a performer, and uh, it, I said, sure. I had never choreographed before, I kind of lied. And uh, they let me do a couple television shows and uh, liked the work. And that's how my association with Disney started again. It was nice. I had been with them as a kid, uh, gone away, kind of grown up, and well, grown up to a point, and uh, gone back with them. Mm -hmm. uh, they put me together with a team, the director Rob Roth, mm -hmm. the scenic designer Stan Meyer, and we started doing some live entertainment for them, Dick Tracy, a uh, couple shows for them, uh, for the Disney Channel, and uh, got to Beauty and the Beast. The, uh, the, when you say, I kind of lied, that's a console almost everybody's yeah, life. No, yeah. it, it, it turns out, maybe or maybe not a break of some kind, but when the break comes, if it is a break, you have to kind of lie. Well, you just uh, you have to go for it. Yeah. You know, if you want it, you just have to take the step and try. And they were very supportive. They gave me a great support team in Florida for these television shows. Uh, they helped me. I think they knew I was kind of lying, actually. <laughs> I was so carried away by Brunel's name that I didn't even mention the fact that he is the author and star of Jelly Roll. Now, you're, you're yourself, you're your own master in this whole thing. Now, how, how did you get it going all by yourself? Well, it, um, I started with uh, research. I went over to the Library of Congress, and um, Jelly Roll had left um, an oral history. And he spent about two weeks with Alan Lomax uh, daily because he felt that, uh, well, actually he did it three years before he died, so mm -hmm. there was some premonition there that uh, the credit was going to skew as far as where the, the or origins of jazz came from and he wanted to, in his words, set the record straight. So he went in for two weeks and he did these uh, tapes and at times he was very drunk and at times he was very angry and I had to tr try to find the core person uh, that and what he was realistically trying to put across so, and edit it all down into an hour, well, a 90-minute show. Mm -hmm. um, and my own interest in his music really drove me along. 
Mm -hmm. I love his uh, music. I'm from New Orleans, and he's from my culture. So I feel like I had a real key with him. But you were doing, actually what you were doing is, is researching, you were playwriting for yourself, too, which is... Yes, I was. I knew I would play the, the part. Um, hopefully others will later, but uh, it was definitely mine from the beginning. So I was trying to find things that um, I felt would be informational, but also be entertaining. So I booked myself into Michael's Pub, which is a cab, uh, um, supper club, and I performed for five and a half months where I could actually edit in front of people constantly. We changed the, the pianist that I worked with is a Norwegian pianist, Martin Gunnar Larsson, and he was the musical director as well. And we just nightly edited and tried new things, new stories, new songs, until we felt like we had something that was truly uh, not only the right length, but um, a narrative, a cohesive narrative. That's the hard Without thing. being a biography. Yeah. It's, it's hard to turn a, a real life into a work of art. Yeah. Because real life... In, a, in 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah, but That's what you did by working it out little by little. And yeah. you had no... I mean, you did not have... Again, you were doing everything, including not having a director. Not was, at that period. So you had no, no objective uh, person to, or to bounce this stuff off well, except I the had, audience, I guess, right? Right, exactly. But uh, later on, we brought in Dean Irby as who okay. was the director. But I had the experience before. I, I had written and directed and performed in One More Time and uh, Furthermore, its sequel. And uh, I'm sort of uh, necessity, mother, uh, what is it? Uh, the, the mother of invention is necessity. Uh, coming from New Orleans and being racially ambiguous, I'm not easily fit in by casting directors and directors when they're looking for typical characters. And so I've had to write and direct and perform and uh, produce in New Orleans. I produce the workshops before I bring them up here. I just do whatever's necessary for that piece that I'm working Can on. Can I interrupt? Uh, when you, you said you did a workshop, where where did you do the workshop and how did you get to do a workshop? Were you, well, were the, you studying uh, music? Were you? No, what happened originally was that the um, jazz festival in Oslo wanted to celebrate the 100th birthday of Jelly Roll, which was in 1990. So they invited um, myself to work with Martin and uh, sort of celebrate him as a person. And that was the seed of it. It was, about, it was only about a 45-minute uh, thing. But the workshop came um, Later on at the village gate, I just oh. went in upstairs and fooled around. And How did you get to one more time, though? Oh, one more time. What did you do before one more time? Uh, one, I had an experimental theater group, and I was directing for it. In New Orleans? In New Orleans, uh -huh. yeah. We did uh, Albie and Ionesco and Beckett and things that weren't being done in that city at that time. Okay. Uh, I wanted to introduce it there. So um, I put together one more time as a thing that was separate from the group, um, that something that, would, like jazz, would have an improvisational feel even though it was scripted. That was my quest at the time. So we workshopped it for about uh, six months, every now and then performing and, and reshaping. And finally, when I thought it was ready, I called uh, DeLugoff at the Village Gate and Jerry Wexler, and they came down to New Orleans, and they said, let's bring it to New York. See how easy it is? Yeah. It's easy. <laughs> it must have been amazing to get a message from Oslo, of all That's places. Right. Uh, yeah, except, uh, in Oslo? Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing about jazz is that um, 
it's touted as the only American art form, but I don't think it's very appreciated in America. Mm -hmm. When you go to Europe, which have done a lot touring with jazz groups and stuff, and my own shows, people are just nuts about jazz in, yeah. in Scandinavia particularly. Mm -hmm. And it's very well respected. It's terrific to have that. Don, I, I was speaking of, of, of course, workshop, um, and Playwrights Horizons is uh, sort of one of the premier places for work, working. Uh, and on the Cheever evening, did you evolve that? How did that work? I mean, did Pete yeah. uh, get... Uh, tell, me, tell us a little bit about that. We did a series of readings last year. We did three readings over time um, because it was an adaptation, because it involved 18 stories. Um, it's a form that Pete's comfortable with because he's used it in the dining room. And this is A.B. Gurney, by the way. Right, sorry, A.R. Gurney. Uh, but, um, so we did three readings, and over the course of those three readings, uh, worked on changes, worked on making the script. Uh, sometimes he takes a story from Cheever that's very serious as a story, but he used uh, a, a comic section of it in order to integrate it into the evening where the evening needed a comic lift. So, so uh, it, was, it was finding the right balance material. And, um, and then in rehearsal, uh, Mr. Gurney is uh, uh, very facile at rewriting. He listens to actors, he listens to their suggestions, he's uh, he enjoys to dig into it and change it and make it better. So during rehearsal, the script changed quite a bit, too. And then even in production, we decided that in order to make it more fluid, <coughs> Pete needed to write some transitional material, which he then did. So it changed all the way up to about a week before opening. So you really are, uh, as a director, really working truly in collaboration. Right. with a live playwright, right. which... Uh, yeah, we have a, a, a sort of extensive dramaturgical staff as well. Um, we have now three people in our literary department, and um, it's a playwright's theater. I always think that the, the main stage is almost the tip of the iceberg, and, and while it's important, obviously, for the work we do, that the real work we do is everything you see before it gets to the main stage. Um, I think that it's kind of a next step place. We get a piece and we say, okay, this piece has merit. What's the next step? We have a, a one-week's work program, which is we take the play and sit in a room with a group of actors and a director for a week and, and just have that playwright take the next step uh, by working with actors and a director, dramaturgically focus that play. And we have two-week readings. We have the new theater wing upstairs, which is a minimally designed production that runs for two weeks at $10 a ticket, does not get open for reviews. And then we have the, the main stage work. So we have just about every step you can take along the way and, and then tailor it to the playwright's need. The Cheever Evening is very cunningly uh, put together because the small bits and pieces at the beginning, they're all the hors d'oeuvre, right. and then the last major thing is a, a play in itself. It's, it's really true. substantial and it's it builds true. to that. Right. And of course the audience doesn't realize that all these bits and pieces are going to be leading up to a very powerful uh, ending. That's right. It's a clever construction, isn't it's, it? It's wonderfully yeah. skillful. But, but now, you must have guessed that from the beginning, or did you know that you were going to build to that uh, somewhere along the way? Well, that was really uh, uh, Pete's idea, uh, that um, he'd use the stories, um, sort of tab versions of the stories, and build his way. Uh, it's kind of a migration of a class. We start out in the city, move to the suburbs, and then Act Two is at the seashore, sort of saying that this class was at the center of things in the post-war boom, and as time progressed, they moved to the edge of society, outside society, trying to hold on to their world. And so um, the second act, which is all at the seashore, uh, becomes an accumulation of stories. Finally, the last 
section of the play is really three or four stories integrated, Goodbye My Brother, uh, yeah. a few others. Um, and it was Pete's intention to build to that one piece. And he, Gurney and Cheever both, but Gurney especially is very good on elderly parents <laughs> and who are supposed to play the role of elderly parents like in real life. And then it turns out they really are so sick of the troubles of their children <laughs> and the That's imminent... True troubles of their grandchildren. They just want to drink and, and, and be quiet. <laughs> That's right. And, and so this is what, how that part of the play begins <laughs> with, 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 with the father, the grandfather, just wanting to be all that time, drink and be content. And then all the, this family trouble interrupts. You know, That's and, right. And it is so wonderful. And that, the audience, the shock of recognition on the part of the audience, almost a sense of the relief on the part of the audience, at least of a certain age, that they can laugh at this terrible situation which they themselves face. Find themselves daily. in it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you so can run, but you can't hide. It's a, it's a very good, it's a very good put, putting together of all that. And it, is the Cheever family happy with it? Very happy. And, and we were kind of nervous about it. Um, um, Susan came first, came to opening night, and she was sitting behind me, and I hadn't met her yet. And as the lights went down, I heard her say to her husband, Oh, my God, why did I say yes? And then, and then the lights went up, and about 10 minutes in, she said, Look at the light. And, of course, Cheever is all about light. Uh, light was very important to Cheever. It's a transforming element in his writing. And we were very careful with Ken Posner and John Lee Beatty to really orchestrate the, the play of light. And when I heard her say that, I th thought, okay, I think we're home free. And then she laughed and laughed. In intermission, she said she's having a wonderful time. Um, she said at the end that everyone thinks Cheever is so bleak and un unrelentingly uh, bleak. Um, and she said it was so good to see his sense of humor come forward. And Actually, Cheever's work in the stories was much funnier than, say, the work as he got older and when the journals were released and the mm -hmm. letters were released. Yeah. We get another picture of him. So that was good. And then Mary and Ben and uh, his wife, Janet Maslin, came. And they brought John Cheever, the second, I guess, was about five or six, mm -hmm. whose favorite part was when Robert Stanton mooned the audience. <laughs> <laughs> he laughed for 45 Somebody minutes. Everybody, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they've been very happy with it. Yeah, that's good. Larry, talk about uh, your collaborative efforts, because I think you've done an awful lot of that. And, and, uh, uh, over the years? Yeah, well, and also... Uh, with Edward? Yeah, and particularly now with, with Edward and Three-Toed Woman and all. Well, the way the Aldi play sort of um, came to me was because of uh, River Arts Repertory up in Woodstock, New York, where, similar to the process Don just described, we had... Uh, every summer, playwrights in residence working with actors. But um, our playwrights would come up without a script. They would just have an idea. It began with Len Jenkin, who um, I just invited up, said, hey, you want to work with six actors for a couple of weeks and write a play? He said, sure. And he said, I like coming up with dirty napkins and scribbles. And so he did. And slowly, over a two-week period, he wrote act one of a play that eventually landed at the, um, the public. Joe, uh, Joe Papp produced it. Um, and that began a whole process that Len started working with me with um, bringing uh, people up, Eric Ovemar and Mac Wellman and Connie Condon and, and, and on and on and on. Um, and then we started doing international writers and Israelis and Palestinians. And, um, uh, and it became a real place. People would come from Europe even and say, hey, I've heard about your place in Woodstock. Can we come up and can I come up and work on my play? And it was very exciting in the summer. Um, and we had a main stage, which I also thought was just a pretext for doing the other stuff, um, which was always much more interesting uh, in process work. Mm -hmm. And of, uh, I had heard about 
um, three tall women from one of my patrons who had seen it in Vienna and came back and said, he, get, he gave our theater a lot of money, and he said, you know, boy, this is a great play. You should try to do it. So I got in touch with Edward and asked him if he had any plans for the play, and um, we, he, we spoke over a period of a year, and um, the f I got in touch with him one summer, and by the next summer we had agreed that River Arts would do the play, and we did it on our so-called main stage, not as a work in progress or anything. And we began, uh, Edward came up, and we um, did the first reading, and then we had a deal where he would go away for about two weeks and come back and watch a run-through. And so we were able to work, and then he came back, and he watched a run-through and um, uh, gave me notes about what he felt um, was working and what wasn't working. And then we worked again for another ten days, and he came back, and then he was there through the whole dress rehearsal process. Uh, he made minimal script changes during that time. Not a huge amount of rewriting. The play um, was uh, fairly compact. It needed some cuts. You know, we had discovered in rehearsal certain uh, monologues were too long, um, but the structure never really changed greatly. Just basically he would come and trim and eliminate, and um, I had asked for one line to clarify something, and he's gave me the line. and um, But he really, I think, is a writer who, when he writes, it's there and doesn't need a huge amount of tinkering. He um, feels very strongly about that. One of the interesting seminars we had here last year was with Edward Albee there and Tony Kushner here. And Edward is the playwright who, like William Helman and some of the other playwrights of the previous generation, wanted a finished script. And that was what he intended to have. And that mm -hmm. was what it was going to be. Mm -hmm. Whereas Tony, wonderfully, the exact opposite, believes in the ensemble of everybody putting his two cents worth in, and, and then his accumulating a play like that with, with, in a very friendly, creative burst of activity all around everybody. So it was wonderful to have these two examples, both very gifted playwrights, both doing exactly the right thing, and both doing it in opposite directions from each other. And, and there they were, facing each other. Yeah. Did you deal differently with Albie as a director uh, than with other playwrights? Did he, did he influence you more in directing than another playwright would have done? Um, it's, it's interesting because there's a process um, and a relationship I've had with many writers, Richard Nelson, and, um, which was very, very similar, where the playwright would come for the first reading. I have a lot of meetings with the playwright beforehand about um, what the play is about from the playwright's point of view. Uh, and then once I felt clear about what I felt it was about from the playwright's point of view and, and how to translate to the actors what the intention is. Um, uh, is that the process, the playwright to you, to the actor? Yeah, to the actor? it's always the process, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the the process was very, very similar in terms of um, coming to a reading, then going away, and then coming back and watching a run-through, and then coming back for another run-through. And it's a very, very similar kind of process. The thing that was different about Edward is um, he's extremely specific and clear about what he writes is what he wants. And there's less variable room. Um, and in rehearsal, 
I remember um, doing certain kinds of staging and saying, well, now Edward's going to um, say, get rid of that. And I thought, well, we're going to try everything. And then it'll, I sort of want him to say, let's get rid of a couple of things. And uh, I knew what he would focus on, and I sort of did it because it was interesting and it was good for the actors to do it, even mm -hmm. though it didn't end up in the play. And then, true enough, he came and he saw that and he said, all right, that really is not in keeping with my play. <laughs> and so we got rid of it. Uh, but we also were able to keep a lot of other stuff because things that were glaringly uh, not right, but good for the actors to do as part of a rehearsal process, but didn't necessarily need to end up in a production, could get cut, but other things could get kept. And he was very clever. He asked me, well, why was I doing certain thing? Um, the, I had asked the actors to move really slowly. We were using the image of sort of still photographs. And he said, you know, what, what's going on there? And I said, well, we're sort of working with this image of like photographs that settle. You know, don't ever like play it fast and frenetically and sort of overreact to moments. And he said, ah, the problem is I, um, I see the photographs. And I said, <laughs> okay. And all I did was take out moments where it would sort of begin and end and rest and then it was fluid, and it was such a wonderful note. That's all he had to say, and it just opened up for me how to do it and how to achieve what I thought was the right way of doing the play at the same time um, learning from Edward uh, in terms of what really doesn't work in terms of his world. David, what kind of a playwright are you? Are you a Kushner or are you an uh, Albee? I think I'm a little bit between, actually. I was, uh, Nancy is nodding her head, I and she so. certainly knows. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I certainly, uh, when I, I've taught playwriting, and I, I've always told my students that the only true thing I've ever heard said about playwriting was when George S. Kaufman said that plays are not, re plays are not written, plays are rewritten. And, and yet, I have to have something abs that I think is, is as good as I can get it before I show it to anybody. I can't imagine, for example, the, the process that you, you just talked about of coming up and just writing for two weeks. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's inconceivable to me. I have to lock myself away for a long time and, and uh, come up with uh, something that is, is ready to be shown to someone else, and then I need lots of other ideas. And, um, and I fix according to that. I don't, I don't think I rewrite wholesale, but um, Nancy and I worked on Sure Thing, which is the first play in All in the Timing, the first time through. And um, uh, I would say the, the play up until the end, we, we would fix tiny little lines along the way, and any good ideas that anybody had went in. For example, um, uh, um, there's a, there's a line that always gets a laugh. Uh, it's Nancy's line where um, uh, she's, uh, uh, she says, he says, are you waiting for, s there are two people sitting at a cafe table, and, and he says to her, are you waiting for somebody? And she says, uh, yes, my lover. Here she comes right now. And the bell rings, and it always gets a laugh. And <clears throat> I had written this terrible line. What was it? It, it was, I believe, 
Uh, yes, I am waiting for someone. My lesbian lover. Here she comes right now. And I said, bang, bang, bang. What is Nancy's role in this? Well, that's right. I wanted, to, I wanted to have you. Yeah. Um, and so Nancy said, no, darling. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't believe that anyone would say, my lesbian lover, here she comes right now. Here she comes right now says it all. No. But there are all your different roles. Uh, uh, they are written for Nancy. I mean, that part. Well, that, that part was developed for her, right? You know, that part was. And actually, when I wrote Universal Language, the first reading we ever had of it was in a bar in Soho with Nancy and I reading it aloud at the bar to each other. And, <laughs> and actually, I was hearing Nancy wonderful. read it in this bar that, that, that taught me that it was that would be okay. You know, yeah. it was fine up to that point. But um, I'm very bad at endings, for example. I... Uh, it takes me forever to, to, to get endings right, and, and Sure Things ending, actually, I called into the director's phone machine from a hotel in, <laughs> in Los Angeles and said, try this. And when I came back, Nancy, I think I had, I had used macaroni and cheese, and Nancy had said, it would be all right if I changed it to broccoli or Brussels sprouts. Yeah. And so we changed it to that. And so um, it's, endings take me forever. The end of Universal Language for this show, I, I really finished four days before we opened and it was there were many the last five minutes of that play went through many many permutations and and so getting getting that adjustment to the ending is always hard for me but um, a lot a lot stays the same but I have to have other people's I, I couldn't work like Albie where I, I'm not so uh, either sure of myself or so um, uh, I don't know. I don't have the same attachment to what I've written to think that it's right. I will change absolutely anything. He also Nancy. uses a separate language. Uh, uh, all these languages are not <laughs> conventional yes. colloquial no. English. It, it's it's all the English. Yeah. So that makes it, that isolates him to some extent. Yes. I think he did seventeen, according to Robert Stanton's count, who was also in All in the Timing. Um, whose bottom you mentioned earlier. <laughs> uh, I think he said. I think he counted seventeen. Endings versions to uh, to universal language. Yes, mm. yeah. Nancy, yeah. go back to before all the endings. Okay, where did before you come endings. in? How many? How many? I came in about seven years ago. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's it was seven years together. ago that we started. And say what? At, well, I came in for sure thing, yes. which was the first play of the evening, all in all in the timing. All of these things, I think maybe you should mention, didn't write them all of these one acts for one piece. You sort of wrote them at different times. Right. And we sort of brought it all well, together. Now, how did you except get, for I wanted to talk about language. your, you know, collaboration you and how you collaborate. <laughs> yes, yeah, how you collaborate. What goes through your mind? How do you interact with this? And Nancy, are you an actress? Yes. Uh, were you an actress before a collaborator? <laughs> yes. Are you an actress collaborator now? <laughs> I, I think mostly an actress, I guess. Mostly. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're a little of both, though. Yeah. You can take so. the fifth on any of them. Yeah, that, I could. So, yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> All right, now yeah, go yeah. on. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting when you, when you were talking about the things that you know are going to be removed from a play. But from an actor's point of view, it often uh, informs and deepens the performance. That's why it's so great to be involved at the very beginning, because you get all of that. Even if you can't make it work, and even if you know it's going to be gone, it can really deepen your work, and, and it's, it's amazing to be involved with the author present. It, it's an incredible experience. Well, the old conventional wisdom, which I must say I disagree with, 
um, was that never, ever, ever let the playwright talk to the actors. Um, that was the old, and, and of course that that was that was the old conventional wisdom. Because there were a lot of things saying that the 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 actor would try to pad their part of it, but uh, I mean counting I mean, lines, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. But um, obviously you feel free to do this, and it becomes a, uh, in, a, in a sense, challenging and exciting for you. We actually kind of... speak on the phone <laughs> <laughs> from time to time. We still change lines in that show, actually. Um, I, I come in and watch it every now and again, and uh, after seven years of watching Sure Thing, I finally changed a line about two months ago that I'd, that I'd really gotten very tired of. It I never place. liked it much either. I'm glad <laughs> you changed it. She admitted that Now it me. comes yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And I'm glad you changed it. Well, it was actually, we both said it, and it, it was, a, you know, the, both characters said it and uh, one of the characters liked the line and I never did I was <laughs> I was on David's side so we we strong-armed him into doing it our way you know George what you said about the actors and writers talking as opposed to um, not talking uh, after all these years of being in both situations endlessly um, what for myself I think um, I finally come to about that is that if it's a developmental workshop, it's great for the actors and the playwright to talk about the script. But when it comes to a production and you've got three to four weeks rehearsal and it's about um, the director talking to the actors about performance, at that time I think the writer should no longer talk to the actors about simply performance, not about text. Mm -hmm. Well, that means that the director has to know exactly what the playwright wants. and and. They also that the actor has to know what the director's role is right. too. But then we come back to the heart of what this seminar is about, yeah. which is the director-playwright relationship, mm -hmm. and then that is such a critical relationship for the director and the writer to come to an understanding about what they mutually want. How do you get that? Does a playwright say to you, "You've read my play. Now tell me what you think it's all about." All the writers that I've worked with are different. Um, a lot of writers say, well, what do you think? What's it, you know, how do you want to do it? Um, I'd, I'd love to sort of see how you do it. And then other writers say, you know, this is what it's about, and this is really how it should be done. And it's, it's a very different process with each writer. Tennessee, Tennessee Williams is obviously so much influenced by Kazam, and, and what Kazam saw in Williams's play, Williams came to see in Williams's play. Yeah. But it was Kazam who saw that which became mm -hmm. the play, mm -hmm. and it was indispensable to Williams. Williams never felt any embarrassment or anything mm -hmm. about that. That was the way he worked and, and, and they worked. And uh, it was it was great to have it that have it that way. With the Cheever evening, you had to be there. Yeah, you had to be working with. And then the other question comes up uh, in respect to the actors in the Cheever evening. Were they also making some uh, contribution they, that way? They actually were. Um, um, they obviously we gave them all the stories. If they weren't familiar with the stories, we gave them the stories. With the caveat that this was n we're not doing the stories, we're doing this new work based on the stories. But they all went home and read the stories. They read the letters. They read Home Before Dark by Susan Cheever. Um, they read the journals. So it, it opened a bit of a Pandora's box because they'd come in and say, you know, in the story it says that I should, and um, and it was kind of negotiating those aspects. But frequently they're all smart actors and they're all um, very dedicated to the play, and so they came in with ideas that were very helpful that right. Pete took, used. Um, so it was uh, a collaboration. Well, Cunningham does this to perfection anyway, but I wondered about that, whether that was... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don, excuse me, why does the dramaturg come in to this process? 
Uh, actually, at the beginning, uh, Tim Sanford, who's our uh, literary manager and mm -hmm. now associate artistic director, and he has two people that work with him. And uh, right off the bat, basically, he's involved in the first readings of the play, and he and I and the playwright will sit down and talk about the play. Is he serves in as a buffer between you and the playwright? Um, just as a joiner in the process, in a mm -hmm. way, you know, and um, he's obviously trained. There's a need for mm -hmm. a dramaturg. It's come into play recently. Right. Mm -hmm. um, is there an actual need, well, or is it just one making one more person? I think there is, part particularly of the at, at Playwrights Horizons, where we're developing new work is our only business. It's all new plays. It's work that's never been done before. Uh, and frequently we'll get a work of promise. Uh, Cynthia Ozick brought me her play, which is now called Blue Light, which was then um, called something else. And, um, <laughs> um, and she uh, was really a novelist trying to make this, this uh, segue into being a playwright. And it was very literary. And she really needed a lot of help in focusing her story and translating it into, into stage terms. Um, so in that case, the dramaturg and I would sit and we what would talk would you have first. Done ten years ago? Hmm? What would you have done ten years ago with, with this oh. play, in this situation? Ten years ago, I was doing a movie of the week. And <laughs> 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 uh, I don't know, because the dramaturg wasn't as popular a concept. That's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, I suppose asking. the director serves as the dramaturg. Well, Kazan and, yeah. uh, and Williams are a good example. It was a European that. thing that came in and was brought over. Every, uh, every mm -hmm. state theater in Europe has a dramaturg. George, you're well, a director. Do you want to come into that? Halloween. It sounds like something like character. Well, yeah, it does. No, I think that actually, because we've been using it, I must say, at the O'Neill for about 20 years. and. That is because we found there was a need to be some... Uh, we sold a term, dramaturg, thinking that nobody would know what it was because it sounds sort of strange. Um, and, uh, and use it as a sort of a, an extra pair of eyes and ears uh, between the, the playwright and the director, uh, an, another uh, force that can receive these... And, and suggest. Uh, Edith Oliver, your colleague, once said the dramaturg is like the old-fashioned washing machine is a crank on the side where the dramaturg is a crank on the side and uh, <laughs> the, the ringer but anyway uh, but I think that that is a, is a, is a uh, is the, what, what a dramaturg well, also expertise? well and one of the, the great way it functions at playwrights is that they uh, being in on the early process of developing the play and being involved in sort of giving the playwright some advice as to where the holes in the play may be or what needs to be fixed then later as we get to preview time and I'm starting to go oh I can't look at it anymore that person helps me sort of refresh my perspective or I can turn to that person for some help about where we might now, but what I mean, if you were going to hire a dramaturg what background would you be looking for I mean would they be from literature or would they be from direction well, they tend to come from an academic uh, background you know like uh, English lit yeah that's a very tricky it that's, is it's, it's a tricky position on whose payroll is a dramaturg uh, on ours at Playwrights Horizons he, he's a on staff the, on the producer's staff yeah right. artistic staff there, there is uh, there, getting a dramaturg is I must say uh, can be a uh, uh, tricky because if you get some playwrights are very good dramaturgs and others aren't because they end up trying to write the play their way sometimes they can back up and 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 be uh, objective enough uh, they come from all sometimes they're critics sometimes they're other directors but it, it's a very tricky position it is a Oban's man between the the uh, playwright and it. now I, I mean obviously again uh, you you don't have that uh, but do, do you have some kind of mechanism beyond the audience 
whereby you doing a one-man show, in, in a sense, have some way to really, beyond the audience, I know you, you, you said you brought in a director later, yeah. to give you that kind of, I mean, I'm sure you crave that or need Your that, remember? <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> I have uh, two different people. Um, Pepsi Bethel does all of the staging for me. But he's also a very wise, older man that I just love and admire, and he's got a sharp eye. And his comments are not restricted to staging. Um, and like I said, Dean Irby came in on this production as, as what's called production supervisor, and just sort of generally had it. But I, like in my writing, as well as my direction, if I'm doing that, I'm very, very open. I'm one of those uh, rewrite, rewrite people when it comes to writing. And when it comes to direction, I'm wide open to, um, I mean, I'm not given a three-week schedule on somebody's play. This is a developmental process. I'm just open to uh, people's things. Uh, what about uh, cutting? Actors. Yeah. How do, can you cut your own material? Can oh, you yeah. cut the writer's material? I make fun of myself a lot. <laughs> so I cut very easily. Um, uh, I have no problem with that. In fact, I overwrite on purpose mm -hmm. so that I know that I have to cut back. No argument between the two of you. No, no argument. <laughs> you, David, oh, you. I, was, I was actually going to present a dissenting view on dramaturgs, which is um, uh, I, I actually would, I have often dreamed of honoring dramaturgs by giving them a small coastal country and letting them talk to themselves. <laughs> um, and, I was going and, to say, I, thought, I think someone here isn't going and then, to lie. And then and then taking a jackhammer and cutting that country off at the border and floating it out into the sea. I really, I have, I have, I had never heard the word until I, I went to Yale when I suddenly had dramaturgs foisted on me. And none of them ever, ever knew what they were doing. And I fired every one of them. I said, if you come into this room again, I will kill you. And, uh, Simple threat. Uh, I, I, I actually find that it gets very confusing. Your director has a point of view. If the dramaturg has a different point of view, where do you go? He's out. And the ultimate, I, I just think that, I just think that what's forgotten, for me, I think that a playwright is, is an excuse for actors. And if, if an actor can't, isn't happy, it's, it really is up to the actor. It's not, if your text is not working, it doesn't matter how beautiful you think it is, I think it has to be changed. And, and uh, I, have, I have rarely found a dramaturg who has much working experience in the theater. That's well, the problem, because um, around the country in the last 10 years, um, I've heard this over and over again, that people have been graduating, getting master's degrees and PhDs in dramaturgy from very prestigious schools and don't really know about the theater, and they try to get jobs, and nobody feels they're really of value. Whereas in the, so I remember um, when Grotowski was working in Poland, and he honored Ludwig Flaschen, his dramaturg, who spent years with the company at the theater and was an integral part of the process, um, as was an architect and actors, and in the collaborative process, or um, people who worked with Brecht, there was a sense of an involvement in the theater that was part of the life of the theater that we've short-circuited in American theater by graduating dramaturgs and say, go to work, without really having that uh, internal, visceral kind of connection. Is it an apprentice kind of role, then? It's not an apprentice kind of role. It's 
another person who can um, be, uh, yeah, who can be part of a process, but it's a very special person. And it's not as if you can get a PhD in it and do it. <coughs> it's, yeah. You have to be a person <coughs> who actually yeah. is involved in the theater that grows with everybody else. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm fortunate because in, in playwrights, we have a fellow, Tim Sanford, who's been there for 17 years. And he's worked with a lot of American playwrights over the years and gradually has honed his skills. He's also a great diplomat. So he knows when to intervene and when not to intervene. And he's also, I mean, frequently, if I, I may have a difference of opinion with him about, about a point in the play, and he knows the role of the director. You know, he'll just say, well, I say this, for, this is my point of view, but, you know, he doesn't push his agenda or his now, Ken Tynan wanted to be a uh, dramaturg for Laurence Olivier. There's a letter in the New Yorker this week about that. But his view of what a dramaturg was, Ken's view was, I think, he wanted to help find plays and, and, and uh, initially and in the state theaters in Europe, the dramaturg is also the person who looks over the well, great mass of things. That's what Sanford is. And that's, that's, a, that's a fine also. thing. For the, you can imagine being that as a very useful service. That has nothing to do with interfering with how the right, plays put right. on. Well, George and I have a common friend, um, dear friend to both of us, Anatoly Smolyansky, who is uh, the so-called literary manager of the Moscow Art Theater, but he's one of the most brilliant men of the theater in the Russian theater. Now, to have somebody like Anatoly Smolyansky as your literary manager dramaturg is like getting a gift from God because you have a little um, genius there. But those people are few and far between. Very, very rare. Yeah, he just wrote a book on Bulgakov. Um, it's a major, major theatrical novel. Um, it's been published in English. And he's editing the collected works of Stanislavski in 12 volumes that will be published in Russian and English and has uh, unearthed material that nobody ever knew about Stanislavski before, his relationship with Stalin, the whole work with physical actions. And so... He is a, probably a world theater resource. Absolutely. That's going to be a great Christmas present for you. Another genius. I want to ask Matthew I want to okay. Now that we have, all of us understand the role of the dramaturg, I want to know what, what is the difference between a choreographer director and a director choreographer we now see as billing quite frequently in, on, on playbills. Uh, well, my my relationship with the director, but also there is a billing called choreographer director there. as the same person. Mm -hmm. um, what uh, what I, does that mean? It means you work a lot. It, uh, <laughs> director choreographer uh, has quite a job on his hands to direct and choreograph. Have a you musical. ever done that? Uh, no, you know I uh, as I said before was put with this director, Robert Roth, by Disney a few years ago, and we have such a great working relationship. I trust him, he trusts me, we're each other's eyes. He talks about the dancing, I talk about his directing. Uh, there, there aren't any egos there. Also, as, as you were talking about, the, our playwright, Linda Wolverton, she and Rob work very closely together. She didn't have much interaction with the actors. She went through the director. Um, we, uh, it was a, a collaboration, and uh, I enjoy working with a director. I think there's so much to do 
if you're going to direct and choreograph a show that well, you do need. Well, we see him with Tommy Toon, for example. In, in, uh, yes, and I think Tommy Toon with Jeff Calhoun had a second set of eyes. He does have somebody that comes in and whispers in his ear a little bit. Uh, they're on the same wavelength. That's what I'm with with Rob Roth. You know, this is sort of a different kettle of fish on the fire when you're talking about musicals and in terms of collaboration. I think, well, from my experience, I would say when we did Sunday in the Park with George at Playwrights Horizons first, there was a little more of, uh, in terms of feedback from actors and sort of bouncing off. There's not that much time when you're getting ready for a full-scale new Broadway production to have an actor say, I know, I know, I have a good idea. There's really less, Unless you do a workshop. I think. Yeah. If, if yeah. they allow you to do a workshop, yeah. that's great. But there's a, don't you we think didn't there's a little less? I think there's a little less in terms of uh, a musical versus a straight play from my way of thinking because there's so many more people usually involved. Oh, yeah. The writers are not just a playwright. You've got uh, uh, a composer and perhaps You've also got separate scenery lyricist, you and know. an actress as well. Uh, I'd like to do this. Well, you can't. There's a three-ton piece of scenery coming on over there. You can't go out <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you have that too. Well, yeah. you know, speaking, of, we, we talked a little bit at our, uh, another uh, uh, seminar about, about scenery and, all, uh, and how that can get in the way. But also, in terms of, I know you say you have a very good working relationship with, with the director. How does, uh, and as one, one would hope with the, with the, with the uh, scenery as well, because you've got to work around it. But tell us a little bit about uh, the nature of your, how, why that is, a good, how does it go? I mean, in other words, a director is staging something. Um, how do you collaborate so that you make sure that your choreographer agrees, I would think stylistically, I would, would, would obviously go through your mind, um, when you're doing something with the director, do you talk uh, in advance about the kind of thing you're you're doing, or you just put it up there and let the director edit? Oh no, we in advance completely. We worked on Beauty uh, two years uh, as a team, and again the team effort. I, the scenic designer Stan Meyer, one of my best friends. I wouldn't do anything without talking to him. Neither would he without talking to me. He comes to me and says, "Now, do you want?" eight steps? Do you want six? How wide should they be? How deep should they be? Can you get up this? What are the escape steps like? We discussed everything, every piece of it. Beauty and the Beast has a very gorgeous uh, sets and, and very, very, very complex and rich looking. So you, but, but that was all okay with you. You, 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 you didn't have to find okay ways to you, with this. Yes, we had a, we had a, a goal to remain uh, true to the movie because it had been an animated classic and because we were do we wanted to do it big uh, we wanted we wanted the children that were coming our big thing was um, Anne Holdward has a daughter named Leia Anne Holdward's our costume designer and Leia would come in and Anne would show her designs for the Broadway production and she would say who's this Leia well that's Belle you know that's the beast we wanted to stay true to that so the children wouldn't wouldn't be confused. Ten-year-old dramaturg. Yes. <laughs> Start him young. I'm telling you. Sorry. Stop, stop, stop. Before he kills again. Yes. I'm going to meet this child, I know. <laughs> what about casting? Who has the final say? We just finished casting the Los Angeles production, and uh, Rob Roth and myself, and uh, we did most of the casting to the last day and then we brought in Michael Eisner, Alan Menken, and Linda Wolverton. They're very involved in it 
and uh, they uh, enjoy it so much. It's so nice to work with a producer that has fun. You know, I, he wants to come in because he has fun. He trusts us, and that's a very nice feeling. Is that true? Who does casting? Playwright, director, combination of two? Uh, well, the playwright, of course, has final say. Uh, in everything at Playwrights Horizons, actually. The playwright has a final say mm -hmm. on casting, so right. the playwright would sit in on, on right. all of casting. Right, absolutely. Um, and we'll never endorse, if a director has a choice and the playwright says no, that's not right, we'll never endorse the director's choice, we'll, we'll endorse the playwright's choice. No. We also have a casting director, Janet Foster, who is excellent. Yeah, David, speaking of that too, do, uh, do you write, for instance, with Nancy in mind, or do you just throw it out there, or do you have somebody in mind, or a character? It's, it's, it's rare, actually. I, um, I wrote a play for All in the Timing called The Universal Language, which, which is partly in a language I made up by myself, but I, I actually felt that I could do that because uh, I felt pretty sure that Robert Stanton would be playing the part, and I'd worked with him in so many things that I could, I could kind of write it up to his kind of level of genius, and uh, um, so that gave me a certain kind of freedom, but I, otherwise I rarely do, actually. Um, I, I sort of write with nobody in mind, you know, um, nobody particular, I should say. Um, so uh, I, I can't say I, I do. think it's better that way. I always get scared when someone says, I'm writing something for you, because it's the kiss of death. <laughs> you will never, you will never, never see that writer again. <laughs> I hate it. Oh, I just say, oh, please don't say it, don't say it. Talking about casting, Could you Nancy was, I'm sorry, Nancy was the first, last person into, to audition for Sure Thing, uh, and uh, we were desperate for an actress. And uh, apparently, uh, we had found we had found no, no we had found no one who could who was really up to it and and uh, and Nancy went back and called her agent and I think your agent said I think they want somebody younger but they want to call you back and so she sort of came back with pigtails I and, did. and freckles. <laughs> <laughs> yes, could I ask yes, you I did. to save these for as we continue after we take a break? We were going to stop for just one minute while we stand up and stretch and then we're going to come back down again and, and all of this wisdom, it has to be recreated again. So please don't talk too much amongst yourselves. <laughs> Everybody stand up, stretch, take a break and come right back again. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing an American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theatre. And this seminar is on the playwright, director, the choreographer, composer, how they work with each other, and what each one's role is. We're at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, and Brendan, I think, is going to start off right now to give us as much information as he possibly can. <laughs> I'm only allowed to ask questions, you know that isn't all. The, I was, we were talking before about the fact that there are now courses in colleges and universities, how to become a dramaturg, how to become this, that. As a journalist, I've always felt the schools of journalism were a total waste of time. I think the, the idea of uh, having dramaturgs get PhDs in such a subject is a waste of time. But it is also the case in this generation that a great many of our playwrights have indeed gone to school as if 
go to school to become playwrights. Now, you attended drama school. Uh, Went to Yale Drama School, yes. Yeah. Um, Nobody is ever supposed to finish the Yale Drama School. You're <laughs> supposed, <laughs> supposed to go there. I actually am trying to get back in. <laughs> but, but, I, I had a great time there. Very good then, pizza at a place on Chapel Street. <laughs> but how, early on, uh, how, how early on do people think they ought to go to, to school to be a playwright rather than the old-fashioned way of just writing? Well, I, I had my own sort of uh, secret three-year plan uh, in my case. I didn't go to Yale until I was about 30, and I'd had quite a few plays done already uh, by that point. I, uh, uh, radio plays, one acts, uh, ridiculously long full-length plays here in town. Um, and I really went because I had so many things that I wanted to write that the only way I could do it was to go immensely into debt at Yale and, uh, and uh, lock myself in a room. So I really, I didn't go there with any idea that uh, it was that there could even be a school of playwriting. I went there because I had at my, you know, all around me, you know, 45 actors, a dozen directors, incredible designers, and it was, in a, it was just, it was like a candy store for a playwright. And so I had a great time, but I, I, I also ran into the fact that the head of playwriting at that time uh, was still trying to keep Sam Shepard out of modern literature, and so, uh, <laughs> and so it was a. I was fighting a rearguard action on my own. Well, what were you doing at twenty? Twenty-one. Uh, I had my first play done at twenty-one. I was. Uh, a that's professional not a restaurant. That's in your age. <laughs> <laughs> Although that would be nice too. A workshop at twenty-one. Waiter, another drink. <laughs> another uh, act, waiter. I I uh, started writing plays, uh, or I, ha I had my first plays done in college, and at twenty-one I had my first professional play at the world's uh, smallest, worst theater in Los Angeles. Um, and and uh, actually, it was, uh, I, I also went to Yale because I had this really wonderful job as a magazine editor at Foreign Affairs. And uh, I was still staying up till four in the morning writing. And I decided, if even Foreign Affairs can't make me happy, then I have to do something else. Mm -hmm. so. I, I wanted to also uh, ask Larry something on, on Three Tall Women. Uh, uh, as you were uh, talking about working with Edward, these are all sort of things that have gone through my mind as we've talked. Uh, when you when you did that, uh, three tall Edward is uh, Albie is also um, has felt, and I think it was at a seminar not long ago here that he talked about not wanting other directors. He he sort of had come to the revelation that he wanted to direct his own stuff, um, and. Uh, from what you say, that that collaboration was very symbiotic and not at all a problem. So uh, obviously he must have seen something in the way you work uh, to not be, you indicate that there was not a problem, that indeed it was a very, very uh, useful uh, collaboration. Um, but sometimes, uh, what do you think from a director's point of view, if it wasn't uh, Albie and it wasn't Three Tall Women, what, what do you think about a playwright directing uh, his or her own work? Because that's in one of those also truisms that, mm -hmm. along with don't let the actors mm -hmm. talk to the. Mm -hmm. um, there's very few uh, writers who I've seen really successfully direct their own plays, and the, and those playwrights tend to be more um, poetic and imagistic uh, writing, and a much more um, abstract kind of vein where they understand the visual imagery of their own work in a way that's not clear on the printed page. 
And so seeing those people, I've had experiences with writers like that where I've watched them write a, direct a workshop and then taken the play and directed it and learned a huge amount because the script is not very revealing. It's a, it's a highly poetic, it's highly um, a sort of surreal, and then uh, it usually needs a, a real strong designer, director, writer collaboration to get a sense of what's the visual imagery, um, what's the when characters are not written clearly but they're um, sort of um, poetic, then the playwright usually has an idea in his head about a characterization that you can't get from reading it. And seeing those kinds of writers um, stage it in a workshop fashion is very helpful. Uh, the tendency at, is to pace it and um, not, to, not to pace it well, so it tends to uh, be all on one level, and while you can get a lot of clues, um, they're not that concerned with the um, uh, overall architecture of the piece and how the rhythms work because they're working more moment to moment. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to say, we just had uh, Peter Hedges in, in work a new play in the new theater wing upstairs. He, he's a novelist and a playwright, and he wrote the What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And, um, he kept interviewing directors. This is for that program I said that we put up for two weeks. Critics don't come in. It's $10 a ticket, minimally designed. And he met a lot of directors. The directors he was most interested in were either unavailable or, for one reason or another, not interested at that time. He kept meeting directors. And finally, he said, I'm going to have to direct it myself. Um, and we cautioned him over and over and over again about it. He was His wife was due uh, to give birth during uh, the tech time, um, and what, in the third week rehearsal, his mother passed away. So he had all these other personal concerns, but he, he finally, there was no other director. We let Peter direct it. He focused on the play diligently. He did a lot of work on the rewriting before it went into rehearsal. He then approached it like a director. And here's where the artistic staff or dramaturgical help came in. Uh, because we were able to be a staff that he could bounce ideas off of, he could check his impulses, he could come to us for feedback, and it was really well done. And, and it is rare that I think a, a writer can direct his own work, but I think uh, in in this case, happily, it worked really well. Um, but he's a very bright fellow. David, do you ever feel so frustrated that you want to leap in with both feet and just get in there and direct not, I may be I may be a fool, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that stupid. <laughs> It can be very difficult from an actor's point of view working with a playwright directly who's directing because you can't sort of bash away at it while he's away and say, I can't make this work, I can't make this work. You can, but it, it has to be done in a very tactful manner. If you say, you know, this line is a lox and I, it just lies there and I can't make it work, you're less likely to say that directly to someone who's written the line as you would be. To a director, you say, help me with this. You've got to go to him and say something, or her, and, and, and help me with this. That's a very good point, yeah, because we could hash things right. out without Edward there and really just go through the muck and mire and then come to him with oh. great questions. Mm -hmm. And then his answers are fabulous. And he talks in a particular language that, for me, is very clear, but then I have to translate what he says to the actors. I, I never tell the actors what he tells me. I, it's, like, it's like being a translator from one language to another. But I totally understand what he means when he says this, this, and this about his play. 
And then it's a great joy to um, talk to the actors about how to achieve that, because we have our own process. Do you tend to use the same actors so that you know that they'll understand what you're saying? Well, in Three Tall Women, this company has been doing it for since 92. We use the same cast from Woodstock to the Vineyard Theater to the Promenade. So that was a tremendous blessing because in each, it's the third production. How were they assembled in the first place? <coughs> you and Ed were doing casting We together. did casting, yeah, together. And we was it difficult to cast, to get the three generations there? To get um... And that wasn't as hard to cast as uh, we just recently um, were having auditions for the Alley Theater production in Houston. That's going to go on this winter. That was very hard to cast. You uh, cast from here? Yeah, we cast from here. And um, it was, that was complicated. And you used casting agents? Yeah, we used casting That's agents. That's something else that has come into the theater recently. Right. Not very recently, yeah. but the casting agent is another. Well, that's a great resource and a real um, uh -huh. uh, time saver for everybody to have a uh -huh. casting director who can like actually present you with um, with an audition schedule and a resume. How does that work? Tell us a little bit about. You send out a call to the casting agent well, and the, say what? Um, I usually start with the casting director and give him what or her what they need for a breakdown, which is a character description, which could be two sentences on each character. Then they make up a breakdown sheet and send it out to all the agents. The agents submit all the pictures and resume to the casting director. Casting director goes through it and weeds out and then says, this is who I think you should see, then sets up auditions. I go to a audition many more people than I weed out who I want Edward to see, or whoever the writer is, mm -hmm. for the final callbacks. And then I bring back several people for each role for the playwright to finally get um, his or her approval at the end. You <laughs> I see how on. easy it is to get a job? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to move on to something that uh, Brendan mentioned during the break that, uh, and find out what people are working on. Um, now beyond what they're actually performing. <coughs> Vernell, um, are, are you, uh, what, what are you working on? Are you working on something now or are you too busy? Yeah, no, I'm never too busy. Would you tell, would you tell <laughs> us about it? The same kind of, I mean, are you doing the research on something that you want to share with us? Yeah, uh, actually this piece is going to be easier for me, I've decided. Uh, I'm adapting a Langston Hughes play. I got the rights from the state to uh, work on Little Ham and I'm adapting it into, it's a comedy, a three-act comedy, and I'm adapting it into a two-act musical. Hmm. And there's lots of characters because he's trying to um, assimilate the entire neighborhood that he's dealing with at that time, so there's lots of in and out of characters, and I'm just trying to get it together from a three-act to a two-act and keep it true to uh, Langston's uh, writing. It was a three-act play. Yeah, it was and a three-act comedy. Was it successful when it was put on? Yeah, it was very successful. It was we a Broadway. were also talking during the break about the fact that it's almost physiologically impossible for audiences to stand three-act plays anymore. That oh, everybody definitely. wants two-act plays. Yeah. So your problem is a, is a perfectly le legitimate one. I don't think you could make a three-act play of that kind stand up anymore. No. Uh, then you just have to work out the climax. What was ever his second-act curtain has got to be fitted into the first act somewhere. Well, it's different because you. He actually, well, you would have to, uh, in order to end the act, you end it on a high. And so I have to find a different place and a different high uh, at the end of the sec of, the, of my first act. Right. 
But he you had found gotten a composer uh, as well for this. Or yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, How did you do <laughs> that? That I want to deal with right now. I'm uh, working with him, and I want to see how it works out first. I see. Well, but you uh, you don't have to name names. But how did you look around for a composer? How did you find one? Uh, mostly looking for music that I felt matched the dialogue that I'm dealing with, because that's already set. Uh huh. Uh, in spirit. Uh, Langston had gotten a bit disgusted with the commercial theater when they put on his uh, play Mulatto. So this particular play was very successful, but he produced it himself up in Harlem. Mm -hmm. And it ran um, months. But um, Would this be for Off-Broadway or No, this Cabaret one I think it has too many people to be Off-Broadway. I think it would have to be a, a legit Broadway show. Isn't that awfully expensive on Broadway? All those it's not only expensive. I've been uh, uh, several of the critics that came to see Jelly Roll over at the 47th Street Theater. They said, "Well, you know that they're going to jump on you if you do this big Broadway number." I said, "You got to do what you got to do, and you really do, even at the expense of being uh, pounded into the ground." We have another member of the office. They're already pounding at the walls. I think that's a very important thing that we ought to take up the with the playwright. Do you, do you write uh, as a playwright? Do you write only for off Broadway? If you write, and if you don't do, and you're writing for Broadway or Off-Broadway, what's in mind? What's, what, what do you do when you start writing? I, I, does that I can't say that. I, I'd love to picture the music box theater stage when I was writing, but I, I don't. Hmm. Um, I, I, I tend to, I think you'd have to be a fool to write for the theater these days without regard for the economics of the theater, which are disastrous. Um, the new play that I have going up next year has eight people, which is too many for off for off off Broadway, but you know that's where it's going to be because it's a great place for me to just put it up and see what it looks like. The stage will be too tiny; it'll be too expensive for the producer. But um, uh, I tend to write with smaller stages in mind because I tend to like smaller stages. I love I love chamber theater the way I love chamber music, and so um, I tend to write for a smaller stage. So the audience, uh, eight, pe eight people. Is great from uh, there's so much more nourishment for mm -hmm. an audience. Not, and, and the tea reading that last big scene with everybody there is so nourishing. Just by sheer numbers, it's nourishing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm reminded when you say eight is almost too many. When Wally Shawn wrote his first play, and not, not understanding the economics of the theater, had over a hundred characters, in it. <laughs> and uh, he said, that "Why not? You know, you can do it in a novel easily." Well, instead, well, my my first play at the Circle Rep in in. Uh, 75 had 22 actors and 44 scenes, which tells you how little I knew about the theater. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I was going to say the opposite thing, where um, I did a show one more time that on purpose I had a very small show because I wanted to keep it off Broadway, and that was my head. I mean, I come from the Grotowski experimental thing. But um, it wound up on a West End in London. And it wound up on a national tour. So you, you're not, when you're writing, you're not really writing for a space. A venue, yeah. A venue, in particular. Mm -hmm. The audiences, sometimes it'll work for 800 seat house. Mm -hmm. You never we know. We have a lot of questions to be asked. I have to interrupt you again. Would you like to ask your, first, your question? Good morning. Good afternoon now, everyone. This is for Vernel. And all who may apply, you wrote the play, you direct it, and then you act in it. Have you had the experience of doing that? What was it like? Uh, 
I've had the experience several times. I, uh, if it's a play that I'm not involved, in, that I'm not performing in at this point, I would definitely direct it and write it because I feel like I can really focus my writing. I'm sort of writing. He was the writer that he was mentioning that uh, I see it more than I put it down on paper. So it's it's better for me to direct my work um, if I'm not in it. But I learned my lesson on, on this musical Stagger Lee where I was in it and I'd written and directed and I finally just had the producers to take me out of it so that I could direct it. Uh, it's it, the technology today with moving sets and computers and uh, that the director has to go through with the choreographer is it, just overwhelming to try to split yourself up too much. Thank you very much. Thank you. My name is William Cobra. This is to the panel. With Disney moving in on 42nd Street and Broadway, what impact do you think you're going to have on Broadway theater and off-Broadway theater? Will it be more explosive or will it be an alternative or will it um, crush Broadway theater? Why don't we have Disney? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm not a Disney employee. I did. But I, I tell you, the, I don't know if you've seen the plans for the new Amsterdam theater. They're just spectacular. Uh, we I, haven't. Tell us about it. I, uh, they're going to restore it. They restored, Disney restored uh, theater, the El Capitan, on Hollywood Boulevard uh, and brought it back to its original form, and they did a spectacular job. They're hoping to uh, start building on the New Amsterdam soon, and I'm hoping to open a show there uh, that I'm working on. What's in uh, 96. I really can't tell you. Oh, no. <laughs> but, uh, when did they plan on the first show? 96. 96. Yeah. Ron, I think, how do you uh, personally, I think after working with Disney here on Broadway, and uh, they're generous and kind, and they've been wonderful to me and the creative team. So uh, I've had a wonderful experience. They're looking forward to bringing new pieces of work to Broadway in big ways and off-Broadway. They'd like to do a small off-Broadway show, too. But uh, because of the economics right now and to make it worthwhile open, opening a division here that they do, they uh, have to do some big works first. I think they're a welcome addition to Broadway. Hi. Um, my name is Mary Kennedy, and my question is for Lawrence. Um, how do you give your idea of the play to your scenic designer and your costume designer, how do you present your idea of what the play should be about? Um, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and it, it always varies with the designers and the play. Um, I recently did an opera last um, spring that um, I had spent several years developing. I commissioned the writer, the composer, I, I adapted the novel, and, and so I worked with a brilliant designer named Marjorie Bradley Kellogg, and we spent a lot of time talking about the world that the opera existed in. Um, the idea, what was the philosophical idea? Because it was her job to come up with a non-traditional set, with a kind of environment that could be a landscape where a lot of action could occur <coughs> and it was sprawling. And that's the most exciting way for me to work, is to talk about um, the idea of the work, uh, the, what, the, what the work is about, what it means to me as a director, and then to have the designer come up with a visual image that captures that. What's least interesting for me as a director is to say, all right, this is a realistic set, I need three coffee tables and a chair and two windows and a flat, and it's like a naturalistic living room, which is not fun. It's not fun for me or, and usually for the designer. Um, 
But some plays need that, and when, when you need that, you try to capture an image also. My name is Joyce Fearing. Uh, this is a question for Mr. Scardino. Uh, one of the most exciting things for an actor to be in New York City and working here is to be in on the developmental end of playwriting uh, and being able to read and reread with the rewrites, uh, which I've done with various organizations. And though having been uh, sent up to audition at playwrights, I've never found out how to get involved with the playwriting aspect, uh, that part of, of the organization. Uh, well, actor is obviously a very vital part of that process. And um, we, we basically go through our same channels, which is, say, for the one-week works program, if we're going to put a group of actors to work on a play for a week with that writer and a director. Um, again, that would go through the normal sort of casting office channels, or uh, if you were involved working with a writer, as an actress and had developed work of his before, he might or she might bring you in mm -hmm. to do that work at Playwrights Horizons as well. Um, Nancy, I think you should add to this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I could add to that a little bit. Well, in the old days, it used to be, <laughs> it used to be, mainly there was a lot more work too. So uh, now that people are vying for auditions for readings, sometimes readings of only two days. Yeah. Um, so in, in, some, in some respect, it's, it's a little more difficult because um, if I don't know Janet, for right. example, at Playwrights, and I have no way to get to Janet, perhaps I would not work at Playwrights. It's, it's a little bit difficult sometimes, especially with the casting director as well, if you sort of know that, that casting director. Lots of times you'll get in. If you don't know the casting director, it's a little more difficult. Well, so sometimes I would never see Larry or I would never see Don right. because I don't have the right connections. I might have different connections. True. Thank uh, you. I, I say I was an actor for so many years, 20 some odd years, and I never worked at Playwrights Horizon. Oh, there you go. <laughs> never. <laughs> Couldn't and get now in. It's yours. And that's mine. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. Hi, my name oh, is yeah. Yvette Gagne, and I like to know. If in the theater community is um, for on Broadway is is that reserved more or less for sure things as far as the work is concerned? Um, is there any room for risky work on Broadway, or is that reserved for the off Broadway? Very little room for risky work on Broadway. <laughs> Costs too much money. Yeah. Ticket price is too expensive. There's very little room in the commercial world of off-Broadway now for risky work. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's gotten too expensive. Um, they're afraid they're not going to build their audience. The audience has shrunk, uh, getting younger people in. Um, so, so, I mean, we can risk, fortunately we can risk at Playwrights Horizons because we're a funded theater. We have 5,000 subscribers. They're going to come, hopefully, regardless of what the critics say. Um, and that's true, I think, of the other off-Broadway off venues. Of the arts in general. True, of the arts in general. Yes, Nobody's going to take a chance on that. That's the big question for all of us, and, and I'm afraid it has, can't be answered here. What about you, Dan? Uh, my name is Dorothy Gannon. This is from Matt West. Um, did the costumes in Beauty and the Beast pose any special challenges for the choreographer? Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you again with the collaboration, which I think is so important. Anne Hold Ward, the costume designer, and I went to Zabar's. And we looked at all their little spatulas, you know, we figured out what we could use together. I worked very closely with Annie. And again, on the L.A. and Toronto productions, we're rethinking, redoing, we learned a lot. We're, uh, she's very open to uh, making it better. So it's a, it's a pleasure. 
Thank you. This has been a wonderful discussion. It's been on the playwright, director, and composer, their roles with each other, and how they, how they develop the theater, how they develop playwrights. We've even learned about dramaturgs, and I think that's <laughs> become a very important part of the theater. This is an American Theater Wing seminar on working in the theater, and it's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This is but one of a series of seminars that the American Theatre Wing does. We do one on the performance, and one on the play script director, one on the production, and one on the design, set design, costume, and lighting. And I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very proud to be able to call upon the people that we have here today uh, to say, please talk about the theatre for us for the American Theatre Wing and for the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Thank you all for being here. Come on.